Thanks, Mike. So if you remember, about six weeks ago, we celebrated what? Mother's Day, right? And if you remember, I uh, began the sermon on Mother's Day talking a little bit about, uh, you know, our propensity to spend a little bit of money on Mother's Day, that it's actually the second holiday where we spend a considerable amount of money, right? The first being Christmas. Christmas is the holiday, according to the national statistics, where we spend the most money on average per person. The National Retail Federation reports that we spend $800 per person at Christmas, $200 per person on Mother's Day. Any of you curious where Father's Day fits on this list? Right? I'll go on to share a couple of numbers with you, right? Uh, so on Valentine's Day, we spend an average of $116 per person, making it number three on the list. At Easter, we spend an average of $110 per person, making it number four on the list. And on Father's Day, we spend an average of $91 per person, making it number five on the list. So we're down the list a little bit, dads, right? I was also curious to to know what is it that we spend our money on when it comes to Father's Day. And it appears that many of the things that we give on Father's Day, dads really don't care to receive. There's a list out there of what is called the Bad Father's Day Presents. I was curious to see if I had ever given one of these to my own dad. and Maybe you would be as well. Here's the list that was developed. The first thing on the list is anything that is novelty clothing, like Chiefs Zubas. Any of you ever been given a pair of those? Nobody's shaking their head on it. Okay, how about this one? Paraphernalia that says, world's greatest dad. Any of you gotten one of those before? Or the singing bass wall decoration. That made the list. Car accessories. Maybe some of you have gotten or given novelty cologne in the flavors or the smells of barbecue, bacon, or sweat. Because somebody evidently was given that as a gift as well. Personal hygiene products hit the list. And, last but not least, the always needed personalized flask. Because everybody takes a flask with them everywhere they go, right? Actually, what researchers found out that dads, what they really want for Father's Day is a practical gift that is given with sincerity and love. Now, you're probably wondering, what in the world does this have to do with the message today? Absolutely nothing. Just thought I'd share with you. It seemed like it was kind of a a fun thing to go through and be reminded of what we do on Father's Day. The message, though, has a little bit ten, a different tenor for it today. I'd like to pause it with you this thought this morning. We as humans are incapable of measuring the extravagant, overflowing love of God that is for each and every one of us, that is for all persons. It is impossible for us to comprehend this. It is impossible for us to calculate it. But measuring the love of God in your life is not the object of living. The object of life, the the call for each and every one of us, the invitation for all of us who claim the name of Jesus is for us to live in the midst of that love and to be that love in the world around us.
Because all of us know that we live in a world that needs a cure. There's many things that are going on around us that are so disturbing. I was reading and watching the news this week, and and if you think about it, the world is not on fire with God's love at this moment, is it? It's on fire in a different kind of way, with hate and strife, what we would many of us claim to be senseless acts of violence that are being purported and reported on every single day. Think about the 51-year-old woman, Joyce Mitchell, who was arraigned earlier this week for aiding two New York inmates in their escape from a prison. Do you know what she was doing, what her aim was? She was hoping that she could barter with them and get them to kill her husband for her. That was her motive in helping these two inmates. On Wednesday, it was reported that a a diplomatic fight has begun over Sudanese women who have been sentenced to death for converting from Islam to Christianity. That now this has been raised to a political concern. Some of you know that a, a variety of families gathered in Oakland, California to remember the loss of their young children, their student children, who were there and found themselves on a balcony at an apartment in San Francisco and under the weight of too many of them being on the balcony, it fell five stories and killed a number of them. And these families gathered to mourn the loss of their kids. Or others of us, we recall the story of a 21-year-old, a young person that you would think would have a lot of life ahead of them and potential in this life, but instead he finds himself in a church on a Wednesday night with a gun and he kills nine people that are having a Bible study. And they have to track him down to arrest him. It appears to me, dear brothers and sisters, that as I read and watch what's going on, that we appear as humanity to be on the verge of just tearing ourselves apart at the seams. Over violence, hatred, war, we're fighting over color, land, religion, power, and the only thing that is resulting in is devastation of families and communities, streets that are becoming war zones, and a humanity that seems to be at the breaking point. And yet there is an answer to this. An answer of people who come at it from a different perspective with the love of the Father in their lives and in their hearts. You think about this story that that Jesus told his hearers of his day. It, It is Luke's best known parable. We often call it the story of the prodigal son, right? Many of the commentators kind of argue with that title a little bit because the story is more complex than it being just centered on one person within the story. They would say that actually we should focus on all three persons, the wayward son, the waiting father, and the older brother, that they're all a part of this storyline. They all have an integral piece in the telling of it and the understanding of it. Think with me again about the story. A landowning father has two sons. One of the youngest, one of the sons, the youngest, comes to him one day and he demands his inheritance in that moment. Now, you never inherited in that day while your parent, and particularly your father, was still alive. So basically what this boy does is he comes to his dad and he says, Dear old dad, 
I wish you were dead right now so I could inherit my portion of your property. The dad doesn't argue with him, according to the storyline. Doesn't negotiate with him. Doesn't try to talk him out of it. They say according to first century culture, what the father would have done is he would have gone to the city gates and he would have made a business deal with one of the other elders. He would have sold all of his property in that moment and been given the money for it. He would have been able to retain the rights to live on the property until he died. He could have farmed it and gotten all the harvest off of it. But it was no longer his property. He would have gone home and he would have divided up that money between those two sons. The eldest son would have gotten a double portion or two-thirds. The youngest son got one-third. So this youngest son takes the money that his dad gives him for the sale of the land and he goes off to a foreign land and he squanders his money in unrighteous living, right? Quickly runs out of all of the money that the dad had given to him. Finds himself destitute. A famine settles in in this foreign country and so he sells himself off into slavery so that he could eat. His new master assigns him the task of feeding the pigs in the field. A joyous and wonderful job for a young Jewish lad. And it says that while he is in the field starving and destitute, he comes to himself. It says if he has an epiphany, a revelation in that moment, he thinks that in my father's house the servants there eat and are better, you know, have better accommodations, they're better taken care of than what I am in this moment. Why don't I just go home and be a servant in my father's house? I'll at least be able to eat and have a place to sleep. So he gets off and he starts his gets up and starts his journey home. And on this journey, he starts practicing this little speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired servants. He just practices his speech over and over on the journey home. Daily, the father has gone to the city gates. That's where the elders gather together for their business. And, and I can imagine that each and every day the father's attention is divided. It's divided between the conversation among the elders and all that they are discussing about the community and what is going on and his vision down the road, his looking and peering down the road, hoping that he sees a silhouette of a young man coming and walking towards home. One of those days that he comes to the city gates, his visioning, his longing bears fruit. and He sees the silhouette of an estranged young boy walking the road home. And the father hikes up the bottom of his robes and he starts to run down the, the path towards the sun. And, and the elders at the city gate are all shocked and in amazement because no elder man in their society runs anywhere. They walk everywhere. It is an abnormal thing. It's inappropriate in their society. And yet this father has longed for his son for so long that he would ignore any proprieties to run to the son. He grabs a hold of him. Gives him a hug that only a father who has been longing could do. And the son, can you imagine this? The, the breath is being squeezed out of him by dad. 
is trying to practice this little speech, trying to get it out. Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven. I am no longer worthy of being called your son. And dad cuts him off right there. Tells the servant, go and get a robe for him. Put it on his shoulders. Get a ring and put it on his fingers. Put sandals on his feet. The father restores him to wholeness in that moment. Brings him back as a child in love and in grace. Nowhere in this story did the father chastise him and berate him for his wild life or even mention it. Instead, dad celebrates, throws a party, kills the fatted calf, something that's an abnormal thing for them. They only did that on the very rarest of occasions did they ever eat meat in their diet. And dad kills a calf and invites everybody to come and party with him. Now, the eldest son has been out in the field laboring. Right, according to the story, those of you that remember it. We didn't read it today, but, but you remember this part of the story. He comes in from his long day's labor in the fields, and there's a party going on in his house. Remember, Dad sold all the property, gave them their inheritance. A party's going on in his house, and he doesn't even know about it. So the eldest son asks what's happening. And one of the servants who had come out tells him, Your brother has returned home and your father has restored him. He has given him a robe for his shoulders, a ring for his fingers, shoes for his feet, and we are celebrating with all of the town. And the eldest son does what? He stays outside the house and pouts. The father finds out that the son is there. And just as he had run to go and see the youngest son, the father leaves all of his guests to go outside and converse with his eldest son. Of course, the eldest son, you know, airs all of his grievances, right? You have never thrown a party for me. You've never even given me so much as a goat to share with my friends. Here's my youngest brother who has taken his possessions, gone off, and lived with nothing but prostitutes. He paints the worst case scenario of his youngest brother. He has no idea what he's been through, the brokenness or whatever has transpired, but he paints the worst picture imaginable. And he says, I have worked for you like a slave. I've been good, dutiful, and what has it gotten me? And with only the love that a father could share in that moment, the father attempts to remind the elder son that he would be with him always and that it's not about what you have or have not done, but it is about forgiveness and mercy and the grace that you can share with someone, especially one of your own. One of the commentators describes it this way. He says, in this moment, the father practices what is called hesed. Hesed is a Hebrew word that means simply this. From the one whom I should expect to receive nothing, I receive everything. That the practice of God's love and grace for every single one of us is hesed. We deserve to receive nothing from God, and yet God gives Everything. For the Jewish hearers of of that day, Jesus' hearers and Luke's hearers, the younger son certainly 
would have represented the sinners that Jesus was having dinner with, the crowd of people that gathered around that Jesus would touch and heal and forgive their sins, the untouchables of their society, the unclean of their society, the broken, the marginalized, the oppressed. That was the younger son in this story. The elder son, of course, was the religious elite that were also following Jesus, but they were there simply to try to entrap him so that they could kill him. They were the ones that wanted to minimize his message and the power of it. They were the ones who thought they were doing the right things to merit God's love and mercy while missing every opportunity to be God's love and mercy. And of course, the waiting father was God represented in Jesus Christ who every moment he could expressed the incomprehensible and incalculable love of God. Maybe for those of us who are modern here, we might see ourselves in this storyline as well as one of these various characters. Some of us might see ourselves as the younger son. We are trying to live our life by our own accord and on our own terms. We're attempting to do the things that we want to do while denying God and God's presence, then every turn of our life we go the opposite direction where God is. We might come to ourselves today, have a revelation, and begin a journey home. Others of us might be those prodigals who've already experienced that in our lives, and we are journeying home, and we are anticipating that God will embrace us in love and in mercy today while others of us might be the elder son. We might be the ones who stand in judgment of everyone for their moral failures, for their lack of integrity, for their sinful habits. We might judge those who haven't pulled their weight yet in the community of faith. We're wondering when they're going to take leadership, when they're going to help pay the bills, when they're going to do this, when they're going to do that. We stand with our arms crossed, waiting. We may call them brother. But are they really our brothers? Are they really our sisters? There's a story of a church that saw the demographics of its community rapidly shifting around it. Within the community existed a fairly equal number of white, African-American, and Hispanic members in that community, but there were only two churches in the town. One was for the the white community, one was for the African-American community. The white church decided to launch an initiative to welcome the Hispanic community of faith into their church facility to give them part of it so they might have their own worship services. So the leadership teams from both of these communities got together and decided on a chapel space that the church would just simply donate so this Hispanic community could gather together for worship and for praise. But it wasn't long, of course, for the arguments to kind of begin as might happen in church here and there, because they found out that the snow tires for the bus that was being used to pick up the Hispanic members of the community, they were being stored in the chapel. And of course, the people who had donated that space thought it was an inappropriate use for a sacred worship space to have snow tires that were being stored there. The pastor decided to get the the leadership of the white church and the Hispanic community together and to talk about this. And one of the, the members of the Hispanic community said simply to the group, we've been invited into our brother's house and every time we are there, we are reminded that it is our brother's 
house. Every time we are there, we are reminded that it is our brother's house. How many of us are the younger son, the elder brother? And yet, each and every one of us are invited to be the waiting father. To act and be present as the waiting father was. Patiently standing at the gates, looking down the road for those who are making that journey home. Looking for the silhouette of the one who is walking back towards God. And then to run and to go out and to close the gap to welcome them. To bring them back into this community. For that's what the father has done for each and for every one of us. Maybe the purpose of of today's message is just simply to challenge each and every one of us to think of who we are in this story and what God is inviting and calling us all to do. Am I the wayward son who needs to come to my senses? Am I the elder brother doing everything to earn God's love but seldom extending it to anyone around me? Or am I emulating the waiting father's love? in my interactions with others. You see, that's the purpose. The waiting father has already greeted a number of us on the road. Unworthy of being called sons and daughters, God has restored us to life now and life yet to come. He has put a robe on our shoulders, a ring on our finger, sandals on our feet. He has welcomed us home. And because of this, we need to be a community that does the same. To capture an image of what it means for us to be that presence of God in the world around us. To be more than just worship attenders, more than studiers of the Bible, servers on a committee. Instead, to be people who are going out into our neighborhoods and the world to be the waiting Father in the presence of God. Because I believe that each and every one of us can make a difference. We can make a difference in this world one interaction at a time. I recently read a quote by Pope Francis. He said this. He said, we need to regain the conviction that we need one another. That we have a shared responsibility for others and for the world around us. And so I believe it's time for us, maybe some of us, if not all of us, To begin to purposefully engage others in the activities of loving and serving God. It will make a difference in our neighborhoods, our city, our world. It will make a difference in our community here. So friends, I say this to you. I'd like to be able to someday turn on the news and open a paper and, and go online and read the headlines and hear about a world that is healing that is becoming better in the presence of God and in the love and the grace of the community. I'm sure many of you would like to see that as well. But you know what? It's only going to happen when we start interacting with others as the waiting Father has interacted with you and me. So here's what I hope you hear today and some things that you might take away from this moment. Just simply to be reminded that watching the news and reading the paper, it appears that our world is falling apart around us, that we humans are trying to figure out how to tear ourselves apart. Yet God, the patient Father who runs out to meet His wayward children, God is inexhaustible and merciful with the goal of teaching us how to emulate that in our very lives. And that we, the church, should do that. 
We should emulate in our every action, not just in our religious meetings, the presence and the love of God. So maybe some of us need to experience God's love today. Maybe others of us need to begin expressing the Father's love starting today. So listen to this invitation. If you're living a life believing that you do not need God, I would say to you that the Father is patiently waiting at the gates, looking and longing for you. And maybe today something has pricked your heart. You've come to yourself. A revelation has transpired. And you're going to start that journey home. Take the first step. The Father will meet you the rest of the way so that you might experience His love, His mercy. Or maybe you're, you're kind of like me at times, the elder son, right? At times where I don't want things to change. At times where I'm wondering who's going to do their part. At times where I can be judgmental about things. And to understand that I would be better off as one who learns to emulate the Father's love in all of my interactions, to celebrate that God can make us whole in His love and in His mercy and that I need to be a participant in that. He begs all of us to go into the broken world, to purposefully engage others to share the Father's love. Either way, I believe that the Father wishes to meet all of us today and to share with us the love, only the love that the Father could give. So will you join me in a moment of prayer? Gracious and loving God, our Father, we recognize today the generous love that you have for each of us and the world around us. Some of us may be trying to live outside of a relationship with you. We, we don't need your love. We don't need your direction. We definitely don't need your rules. But maybe one of us, one of us has had a revelation today. We have come to ourselves. We seek to come home. Help us to accept your extravagant love and your mercy that gift that we do not deserve. Others of us are the elder son. We have served you dutifully in our worship attendance, our giving, our learning. But we've never really thought about sharing purposefully your love. Help us today and this week to see those opportunities and to step into them in a new way, in a new engagement. And help us to share your love. Some of us have come today to experience your love. Others of us have come to be empowered to express it. So forgive us, O Father, where we have failed. And thank you for sharing with us your immeasurable love. Amen.